Welcome back to The Francisca Show, where we encourage fellow artists and entrepreneurs to collaborate and support each other while sharing their stories. I'm Francisca, a singer, composer, music producer, and also your host. I'd like to thank our sponsors. ShopDrop is an iPhone app that lists every sample sale in New York. So if you want to buy designer clothes without breaking the bank, go to your iPhone and download the ShopDrop app today. Welcome to the podcast, Siona Hishena, singer, songwriter, and chaplain living in Spa. It's so Thank nice you. To, yeah, it's so nice to have you. We usually start the podcast with your childhood, with you discovering your love for the arts, how it all started. So you choose where you want to begin, and I'll give you the mic. Okay. Well, I would definitely say my earliest memories are singing. It's just as long as I can remember myself, I love to sing. And I always felt like when I was singing, even though I didn't have the word God, it wasn't part of my, or Hashem, it wasn't part of my, um, you know, my lexicon, but I definitely felt like I was connecting to something bigger than myself, or at least my soul, which I suppose is bigger than who I thought I was at the time. And I always just felt the most free and happy when I was singing. So it's kind of like been this light that I followed all along. It's definitely helped me get through a lot of different things, you know, being able to just keep on renewing myself by singing another song and starting over. When you sing, you get this feeling that you really can start over all the time. So I sang, you know, mostly for my own pleasure. Um, in high school, I sang. I was always, whenever there was an opportunity to go on stage, I would always go on stage, which was kind of weird because I'm a little bit private, a little bit sometimes introverted, but there was something in me that just pushed me onto the stage at an early, early age. When I was even five years old. I was in talent shows and stuff like that. Um, and I danced a lot my whole life. I think that affected me musically as well to have been experiencing rhythms through my body, you know, all through my childhood. So I think that that's had a big effect on me as well. And because I was very serious about dancing, I approached it in a very, you know, kind of diligent and wholehearted way. When I got into music, I just felt like I wanted to do something completely different, just not follow any rules, do it my own way. You know, after all of those years of standing in front of the mirror and kind of, you know, the criticism that goes along with looking at yourself all the time, you know, through those formative years, I just decided when I started to create music that it was going to come from a place of freedom, non-judgment, and jo just joy and enjoyment. And it's, it stayed like that pretty much. Well, that's so beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. So did you grow up observant? No, I grew up in a secular family in Potomac, Maryland. And we didn't do so much of the holidays. I would have these kind of awakenings every once in a while where I would say, well, wait a minute, we're Jewish, but what does it mean? You know, we never went to Shul. We never really did anything except light the candles on Hanukkah. That was specifically Jewish, but I grew up knowing, knowing that I was Jewish. And the various attempts that I made of connecting it, they fell pretty flat the first few times. I just didn't know how to, I didn't, I didn't find anything inspiring, you know, off the bat or a way in easily. And it took much, much, much later in my life before I kind of Jewish spirituality. I know you play guitar and you're very musical. Did you get a classical musical well, training? No, I never was claimed, uh, trained classically. I always, um, I learned from listening to music and singing along, you know, first kind of trying to imitate the singers that I loved and just kind of get inside of their voice and feel how they use their voices, how they went up and down. And I also had voice lessons. That was a classical training, I suppose, um, from the time I was 15 
until I was 17 when I went away to college. So I had a, a teacher who really gave me an excellent like basis for vocal technique. And that helped a lot because when I started to sing, I was used to singing along, like many of us used to singing along with like lower voice, lower voices, singers who have lower voices. And so I had developed the kind of belty range a lot. And I didn't realize that I had this whole upper range. So she really helped me to bring it out. And then I found out that I was like, you know, the highest soprano. So she gave me the basics to be able to go up and down in my range from the lowest to the highest and really know what I was capable of doing. And I've, you know, I've drawn on that basis for my whole life, my whole career since then. But I, I didn't start to play an instrument until I was, I was 21. And I was living, I had a year abroad in Indonesia. And I was really going through a lot of uh, difficult times living there because it was just, a, it was a really challenging environment to, to live in. Can I ask why so, you, why you went why all the way there? Yeah, that's a whole, it's a little bit of a tangent, but um, I was studying anthropology and I was really, my plan at that time in my life was to study great apes in the wild. And the only program that I could find in a country that had these great apes, because there aren't there that many of them, was in Indonesia. So I just chose it <laughs> without knowing anything about the country. I didn't know it was a Muslim country. I didn't have any idea that they might, that people might not want to know that I'm Jewish or I shouldn't tell them or, you know, I I had no idea what I was getting into. It was just, it was almost a little bit random, but of course everything is. Uh, so dealing with, I partway through the time that I was there, I had lived in the jungle for, for a period and I was learning what it was like to live in the wild and study animals in the wild. And after a taste of it, I decided it was not for me. I just suddenly threw myself into music and I started to write poetry and turn the poems into songs. And I had a friend who taught me uh, chords on guitar and I just instantly turned music into this cathartic process to help me deal with the difficulties of the environment that I was living in. And then I just kept going from there. So I started with guitar. And then uh, when I got back to California where I was in college, I picked up the cello, then I moved to piano. And I actually had a really cool experience with the piano that I was playing the cello one night. And one of my strings broke and I didn't have a spare. And I got very frustrated because I was like a little bit of an obsessive, uh, creative type. <laughs> and I wanted to play my cello, but I couldn't. And I just, in, in, out of frustration, I sat down at the piano, which I did not know how to play, and just started banging away. And the next thing I knew, there was all this music coming out. It was pretty incredible. I just remember like really getting totally lost in playing the piano and then opening my eyes and seeing all my roommates were standing in my doorway going, what is going on? How come you can play the piano all of a sudden? You know, it was, it was weird. That sounds like a magical moment in your life. It was, <laughs> it really was. And it's funny that it came out of anger, you know, <laughs> frustration. Oh, I totally identify with that. Some, a lot <laughs> of my music comes out of, you know, very unsettling emotions. Right. So, when did you find Judaism in the Orthodox from, as we call it today, way? I went to a Chabad house. I mean, I had already started. This was when I was already on this Jewish path, meaning I was learning about Judaism. But I was learning about Judaism through um, Jewish renewal, which was like kind of um, new age, kind of a new age Judaism in California, where I was from, in Northern California. So I would go to these different communities that would have um, Shabbat services, and I ride the train to get to them. And I just, I didn't know anything, but I knew that I was very, very, you know, excited to know a lot about Judaism and everything that I learned was like precious to me. 
So I was going around to these different places for Friday nights. And I was also working, I was a student chaplain. I was working in a big hospital in San Francisco. And I met somebody there who I was like, you know, I offered my services as a chaplain and he was like a Chabad guy. He was right away, you know, trying to carve me. <laughs> and he told me, you know, you should go to the Chabad house. There's such great people. And I had no idea what he was talking about, but there was one night on Halloween when, because it was Halloween, so the places where I normally went, they all canceled their Shabbat services. And I remembered that this guy had given me this piece of paper and I jumped on the bus and I got to the Chabad house in San Francisco, like just a few minutes before candlelighting and everybody was rushing around. And, you know, I walked in and it was like, nobody questioned for a second why I was there. And just the Rebbitson said, it's time to light, you know, and I was like, okay, you know. And I just ended up staying there for like two days. <laughs> I stayed there for the whole Shabbat. I was supposed to go back home across the bay to where I lived. And they, you know, they just said, forget it. You are not leaving. And they insisted that I stay. And um, I remember a real wake up moment when we were sitting around the table at night and they were singing Nigunim. And I just remember, what is this music? I want to know what this music is. You know, it really, it was all music, like everything that, brought me into Judaism, the only, the ways that I connected was through through music and different hearing different songs and connecting to music. I felt like very much like an outsider in, in Judaism because I didn't know anything. I was really ignorant about everything that had to do with Judaism. So when I would try to connect in a religious context of any kind, whether it was like, you know, conservative reform, orthodox, anything, I just really felt like I didn't belong. And uh, that's a bad feeling when it's when you're in an environment, you know, where you feel like you should belong. When I would hear these certain songs, and the Gunim also songs of uh, Reb Shlomo Karbach, it gave me this instant sense of belonging. And I understood that I was part of this, and that kind of opened a doorway for me to step inside and see see what it was that I was a part of. So that's so interesting that you say that, that music was really your pathway to finding God. What did it feel like for you when you learned about Kol Isha and about the restrictions women have. Well, actually, oh. Kolisha is not restrictions that women have, but the restrictive environment that comes with it. How did that reflect did in your... <laughs> I did not like that at all. <laughs> I, I, you know, instinctively bucked against the restriction. I actually, you know, I was kind of like a chazanit. I continued, even though I was getting more and more into halacha and Shabbat and everything, even though I didn't know so much, but as I was learning, I wanted to know how to keep Shabbat. I understood that there was a way to do it, and I wanted to know what it was. But while I was having that process, I continued to visit these Jewish renewal places, and I actually was like a chazanit in one of them, in this Jewish meditation center. And, you know, I would lead my chants, and I would totally go for it, and it took a long time before I was willing to take the plunge and try to sing only for women. I think it, it never really came naturally to me, but I did find, you know, that I was really comfortable, you know, like I've, I would feel comfortable performing. I felt like there's an intimacy in performing for women that I just was able to let my guard down in a way that I really had never been able to feel like I could let my guard down in a group of men. And I also oftentimes felt kind of like more energized and full of energy after performing for women, whereas sometimes when I would perform or not so much perform, but like, you know, lead these chanting sessions and stuff like that, I would feel kind of drained afterwards. And I didn't know why. I think that might have been part of the reason is that I felt 
like when I was in a context with women that I could just kind of let my guard down and just be myself and talk, you know, um, and share things and just not feel like I had to hide. So it took a long time for me to see the value in it. And also there was a very scary moment at the beginning when I first made the decision to, to keep Kolisha. There was a really scary moment where it was like, I had no idea what kind of performance opportunities I was going to have or how I was going to continue to make music. Like there were no really, there was hardly anything um, going on for women's music at the time. You know, this was like 20 years ago. So I remember feeling like I can't not sing, you know, and I can't not share my music. If I do, I just knew I wasn't going to be happy in my life. It wasn't ever an option for me to, to stop singing. I know a lot of women who do tshuva and they go all gung ho and they're, they just, you know, they, they love to sing, but they stopped or they love to dance, but they stopped. I was never like that. I was, it was clear to me that I was going to continue to sing no matter what. And if I ever stopped singing or creating or making music, making songs, then I was definitely going to wake up and see that I had come, come to a bad place in my life and I wasn't going to stay there. It wasn't, it wasn't an easy thing to take on. There was a, a lot of inner frustration and resistance around it. And now I feel like I've kind of come full circle with it, that I hold in a different place about it. Like, I, f I feel like there are certain songs and certain performances, like, for example, just to, to jump into a subject that's right now really fresh, is I'm doing a performance on Monday at a women's festival that's on the Kinneret. And the performance is an album called The Water Castle that I made, and it's based on a Rebbe Nachman story. And I basically took this piece of a Rebbe Nachman story about a princess that runs away from this evil king that she's married to, and she runs to a water castle, and she gets shot with all these poison arrows, and then she goes inside the water castle and experiences healing through 10 types of song and 10 types of joy. And that, for example, th that is such a personal expression. It's so personal because it's really telling my story of a very, very hard time in my life that I saw echoed in this story. And even performing it for women feels like, whoa, a big deal, you know, like a really big deal, a very self-revealing, very personal. It's not like just singing a prayer or a chant, you know, um, a line from Tehillim. It's like, it's my words, it's my experience. I go all through every, you know, every shade of emotion. And it's a performance that I'm really happy is for women, you know, because I just feel like this is a space where I can feel safe because it's already a, a bit of a push, you know, putting myself out there to, to share on such a deep level. And it just feels a million times more right and more safe to sing those songs. So I guess the place where I'm holding with it now is kind of finding where the nuances of what context do I feel safe to sing and what context do I feel free to sing and what to sing and how to sing, you know, it's an exploration kind of that I'm in right now. Did you talk about those difficult times you went through? I know you've mentioned briefly on the surface, perhaps. Do you mind going a little deeper? I got married. I was more in a place kind of where I am now, you know, finding my way, not necessarily feeling like I'm bound to do things the way that everybody else does them and, and feeling actually a need to find a way to do things in my own way. You know, if it's singing, if it's Kolisha, if it's Torah, whatever, you know, and this issue of Kolisha was just something that I felt like it really wasn't for me. And, uh, it, it frightened me a lot. And, you know, I had, I got married and it was like, there was so much trouble from the beginning that I sort of felt like I need to kind of wholeheartedly dive into my husband's spiritual vision of our lives and in a hope that we will have 
the peaceful home that I'm longing for. And that was kind of my, my direction. And I also, I met the person who was going to become our Rav and I really, I really loved him. Like I felt right away a huge connection and a feeling of like identifying him as a kind of father figure and stuff like that. So I just at some point decided to, to slay my doubts and just dive in. And we, we dove into this super ultra orthodox lifestyle that wouldn't have been something I would have chosen on my own. And the marriage never improved, you know, no matter what I did to try to, you know, come, come uh, be flexible and, and try to make things better. It was like, it just kept getting worse. And at some point I just felt like I needed to flee. And, and I did, I had three children at that point. My youngest was just a few months old baby. And I really, with, without getting into all the details, I really felt that I had no choice but to just pick up and go. And that's what I did, you know, with these kids. And, then there was another uh, few years after that where I was, you know, it's involved. It's almost a cliche at this point, unfortunately, but, you know, just endless legal strife and fighting to get divorced, to get a get and being able to, you know, to be able to be free from this marriage, which was really killing my soul. So during that period of time, you know, I was raising three really little kids on my own and having to go to court all the time and having to face my then husband over and over again. And it was just total hell. And the thing that kind of kept me going was I kept reading this Rebbe Nachman story over and over again. It was like the only Torah I could read. And I felt like it was planted by Rebbe Nachman, you know, in future, the, the way they say the medicine comes before the illness that like Hashem, that, that Hashem had known, Rebbe Nachman had known that I was going to need a lifeline. And it's put this story, you know, story within a story of this princess running from this king and finding healing through song it planted it there for me so that I would have have something to carry me through and then I I just kind of went inside this this character of this princess and imagined what it was like for her and turned it all into a bunch of songs that were really obviously you know it was my own voice that I was finding so the the album is just it's it's super personal you know and it's it's super revealing and heartfelt and searching and you know I was also searching for joy so I you know I purposefully chose beats that would lift me up and words that would strengthen me like I I was kind of like brainwashing myself to believe in myself and believe in my ability to pick up and get through this experience and the first tour I did with it I still wasn't divorced I was like it was like two and a half years into not having a get and I was like touring North America <laughs> you know <laughs> with this baby and performing this super personal music when I was still in the middle of this fight, you know, in the middle of this battle for my soul, really, that's, that's what it, that's, that's what it was, you know, without sounding over dramatic, it really was. So now I'm kind of like a few years later, coming back to these songs and coming back to this album and getting ready to share it again from this like totally different place of being after and being able to see things more in perspective, you know, when you're in the middle of going through something, it's very hard to have perspective on what you're doing. Music definitely helped me to do it, but being a few years distant from all of that trauma, it, it's it's a lot easier to envision sharing it. And now I'm actually really excited about sharing the music. It's, it's fun to go back to it. Thank you so much for going and sharing your story. I, I think it was worth mentioning and going into that. I don't know how you feel about that, but thank you so much for going there again for us. Sure, absolutely fine. <laughs> and also, I you know you said the word cliche, but being an Aguna is not cliche. It's actually one of those, I would say, loopholes in Jewish law where women are getting the 
bad end of the deal. I, I don't know if it's getting better, but it's not something that's like, oh, that was back then, or that's an issue that's becoming cliche. I, I God just, forbid. I, just I was a little tongue cheek. <laughs> I wouldn't belittle what you went through at all. It doesn't matter Thank when you, you go good. through that. It's so awful. And I wish there was more communal support or more rabbinic leadership, more Jewish leadership that would help women going through this more. Absolutely. Than they yeah. It's a, it's a certain kind of suffering, you know, and if the feeling of being stuck in a marriage that's dead and not being able to move on, you know, as a woman of faith, like, a, you know, I never crossed my mind to not wait. <laughs> and I never knew how long it was going to take either. And it also required a lot of fighting, you know, like standing up and speaking and talking about these things, standing on my feet in front of judges and going back to court again and again and again and again and again, not just court, but you know, all kinds of things. It was like, it was really a, it's a certain type of suffering. And I felt even at the time, like I, I felt this almost like a shlichut to somehow give over this experience to people so they would understand and have compassion on women who are going through something like that because it's it's just like it's absolutely horrible. I mean, I remember people at the time like if I had friends who weren't religious or whatever, they'd be like, "Who cares? Just do whatever you want," you know. And I was like, "They'll they'll never get it," you know. Like, how how can anyone ever understand, you know? And so I, I really felt like part of making the album. I could talk myself blue in the face about how it feels, but I I think that if you listen to the songs. You can get it on a much deeper level what a woman might go through in, in experiencing something like that. And I'll post in the show notes, there are organizations out there that help women. It's definitely more than there used to be, but I'll post some links. There are in Israel, both in Israel and in America. And I'll, I'll post some resources for anyone listening out there who knows someone or who's going through this and needs external help. You have a lot of experience you've been in the music industry for many years you've been touring for the last 17 18 years and you put out 10 albums wow that's a lot of albums can you tell us the logistical <laughs> way of how you put them out did you self-produce did you pay for a recording studio for all 10 albums no <laughs> I did a lot of self-producing. My my current album that I'm working on right now, I'm actually working with a producer, and it's quite a different experience. I think there's something in my personality that 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 thought or was convinced that I had to do everything myself. Meaning, I write all the music, I play all the instruments, I record it myself, I produce it myself, I pay for it myself, everything. And it it's it's not necessary, you know, to to go that extreme, but. On the other hand, I it, I did manage a great output. You know, <laughs> I've, I've had a big output, Baruch Hashem. So basically, the, my very first album before I became religious, I recorded on this like antique equipment that was like this gigantic reel-to-reel thing, which at the time was an antique. Like it wasn't like I lived during the years that that was <laughs> that that was the way people recorded. So that was already just like totally weird and unusual in somebody's living room. And then my next album, I came into some money and I had, I recorded in a very, very nice professional studio in, in Yerushalayim. That album is called Shema Yisrael. And it's all different chants just for the line, the Pasuk Shema Yisrael, Shema Lekeinu Shema Echad. So that was an experience of doing, um, you know, something on the highest level technically. But still I was, you know, I was running the project. I was producing it myself. I just did what I wanted to hear. You know, I just made what I wanted to hear. And then I, every every album is a totally different story. 
one thing I did after that was I would, I do a lot of singing circles, like where women sing together, you know, and it's a prayerful. So there have been times where I just put a recording device in the middle of the circle and just recorded something live and put it out. So that's one way that an album has been released. Another way was a recording home recording in somebody's somebody else's studio. And the truth is, if I think about it, he also was pretty much a producer on that album too. That's Miriam's drum. And that's actually my, my best selling album. And I think having worked with a producer did, did have an effect, you know, for, for making it have a unified vision and a sound, you know, where everything is, you know, kind of on the same page in terms of the sound, it all fits together really nicely and it has a good flow. And that's a really nice album that I'm really, really happy to have had the opportunity to make. Then at some point I got my own studio and I learned how to use the recording equipment. And that just opened up whole new worlds because for example, I recorded an album at home and that's sister heart. And then I, at some time before when Elmer counts, I went through all the files that I had ever recorded and I took out all the music and just left the voices. And then I had another album, which was this acapella album, which actually ended up being one of the most beautiful things I've made. So it kind of created this like, you know, organic ability for me to just keep on making more and more music in all these different ways. And the Water Castle, I also recorded at home, but I recorded a lot of the instruments, like the instruments that I couldn't record myself, like a drum kit or a piano, things that I didn't feel I had the technical expertise or the space to record properly. I worked it with another studio, somebody who is in, you know, in the area here who's, who's really excellent. So I was able to do sort of like half of it at home. I would build the songs and build the beats and, and do all the vocal recordings and any instrument that I play and then bring it to him and fill in the blanks of whatever was missing. So that was kind of like the next step. It was like a home recording and a recording studio recording. And the album I'm working on now is fully recorded in someone else's studio. And I mean, this same studio, Shahar Kaufman, where that I was just talking about. And we started with a live session. Uh, we just brought a rhythm section and we did a whole day session live where everybody was recorded at the same time, but like through different channels and different different microphones. And then on that, we've been adding over the last few years, we've been adding more and more different kinds of instruments, including a lot of ethnic instruments and Middle Eastern instruments on top of that recording session, the initial recording session, and that's almost done. So every album kind of has its own story. Having a home, first of all, having money definitely helps if you want to, you can just go into a studio and pay to have whatever you want to have done. But even like on a, I've been on a really, really tight budget all along. And even so, I've still been able to create a lot of music that I find really beautiful. And, you know, other people have given me the feedback that it, you know, that it's also good for them to listen to it. So that's kind of the story of how I've done it. Well, I really admire what you've done. You've you've worked with whatever was available to you at the time and you made it work and you tried to do as you did do everything you can on your own. It's a total different way of how I work, but it's so admirable and you've accomplished so much. You have so many albums to show for it. Are you able to support yourself or your family from these gigs? Obviously, when you had this live session the other day in the studio, you had to pay all your session musicians. Yes. <laughs> so you you definitely have expenses for this. And, yes, and for sure. But you are performing, and there's this beautiful music video that you released on the beach and in the woods. So magnificent. That cost money probably, too. Would you the say video? No, yeah, didn't it? 
The video, yeah, the video costs money. I, I funded that video through a um, crowdsourcing campaign. I just put it out there to all the people who like my music. You know, I, I want to make a video for once and for all that's really awesome, you know, because I felt like I had, on the one hand, it's amazing, you know, it's like sort of like a, the, the tree grows in Brooklyn kind of image, you know, where it's like, yes, I can grow and thrive and create in any circumstance. But that doesn't mean that it has to be always in a symptom, you know what I mean? And I felt like just the circumstances of my life meant that, you know, I never had enough money to put into it because I was always using the money to live on, you know, whatever I was making. Um, <clears throat> and I've made I've made money in different ways as a musician, especially, you know, I was once a Haredi musician as a, as a religious woman musician. I've had to be creative, you know, in how to do it. So I've done a lot of teaching as well as performing. Um, it used to be that CDs were a huge source of income. You know, I would perform, I'd put my CDs out and people would buy them. Nowadays, people barely touch CDs, you know, because it's just yesterday's technology, basically. Um, but I used to be able to make a lot of money selling my music because it was something that was very special. I had a niche market, you know, of religious women who were desperate for really good music that they felt was kosher and that they could listen to, you know. So I was able to, even though limited in terms of the great wide world we live in, it was really serious about needing my music, you know. I mean, I would have women tell me, you know, they, I'm talking about newly religious people who threw out all their CDs when they became religious and they had nothing to listen to, you know, like that's a pretty bad scene. Or women who are used to growing up hearing other women sing and suddenly there's no women to listen to. It's 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 lacking, you know, it's, it's something that they felt as a real lack. So I, I always felt that the people, the women that I played for and who bought my music were like really appreciative on a level that biggest, wildest fans of a pop star in the world could never appreciate that much because, you know, it was like, uh, I wasn't idolized at all. I was just appreciated for what I was doing, you know, and, and the music was appreciated. But I did feel at a certain point, I was like, you know, enough of this living in, in symptom and, you know, in constriction and, and somehow eking out albums, you know, on a, the tightest budget, I wanted to do something, you know, really, really nice and, and really on the level. Um, so I did that crowdsourcing for the video and it did turn out super nice and I'm really happy with it. And I, I'm also, you know, this album, I would say, this is an album that I'm just, I'm not a perfect, well, I can be a perfectionist. I'm not trying to make it perfect, but I want it to just be the absolute best it could be because I, I really believe in the music that I'm doing and I think it deserves, you know, to, to be given a chance to be heard really. And I am so excited about this music. I, I'm so, for sure to me, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever made. And so is this the, is this the <laughs> primary way you earn income for your family? It has been in the past. Um, I'd say more so when, when CDs were more of a, more of an item that people, you know, found as a relevant technology, but I've always sort of pieced together my living through being creative. So that was teaching private students. That was teaching in Middleshot, you know, places of Jewish learning for girls that was uh, selling CDs. So now it's gotten uh, harder basically because of the lack of CDs that are being purchased. Yeah, I would say in some ways, yeah, in some ways it's gotten harder to make a living as a musician. So I've, I've, been able to do it. And recently, um, like since I moved to Tzfat, you know, like the last six years, I also added another profession, which is chaplaincy. 
And that's kind of opened up another world. So I'm still working with music and music is still the, the center subject, but I'm using it in a context of bringing healing to other people or creating programs that allow people to listen to their favorite music every day if they're in a nursing home or if they have dementia, or finding ways to work with music and keep music at the center of my world, but being open in terms of what exactly that's going to look like in terms of my Parnassa and making a living. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story and your process with us. You're so talented and you're so inspiring with how you just go for it and you you don't settle, you don't compromise and you go for what you believe you want. And mm. you choose joy, you choose to surround yourself with what brings you joy in your life, which is music yeah. and I'm sure other things as well. So call a code for Mostly that. Mostly music. <laughs> <laughs> if there's any parting advice you'd like to share with our audience today, what would that be? First of all, my advice is to follow your guts. Follow your guts and develop your instincts about everything. And don't ignore the messages that your body and your heart and mind tell you about anything. Take things seriously. Um, if it's coming from a deep place inside of yourself, you know, learn to be your own, your own advocate and your own guide. That's one thing. Another thing is that I would say, don't be afraid to ask for help from people who know how to do things that you don't know how to do, because you don't know how you don't have to know how to do everything. And when you can focus your time and your energy on doing the things that you're best at, and find other people to do the things that you uh, that are the less of less of your strengths, you'll be able to do a lot more. And the, the last bit I would say is, you know, this advice that I'm telling myself all the time, you know, trying to remind myself I'm not perfect in this in any way, but it really helps me to focus on what I have and to really count the blessings in my life and, and as opposed to focusing on what's lacking because there's always going to be something that doesn't work and there's always something I could be focusing on that bring me down. And I don't want to be brought down. I want to I want to be brought up. And that doesn't mean, you know, just some kind of fantasy world where everything's fine. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying make room for all your feelings and everything that you're going through. But know that we do have a choice all the time to, to be in a gratitude state. And that gratitude state, it it somehow holds all the feelings and it makes makes space for us to really be who we are in every moment. So that's definitely my my work. <laughs> my advice to myself. Thank you so much, Siona. It was so nice having you on the show. I think everyone can learn from your story and from your amazing advice. So keep doing what you're doing. Hatzlacha with your endeavors, your concerts, your gigs, your new albums. You sound like you're Thanks. living the life. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I really do. So I have a website, Siona Hishena Music, and I have most of my albums are for sale on CD Baby for downloads. So you can just look me up on CD Baby and there's links to my CD Baby also on the website. If you go to my website, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, it's Siona Hishena. So you can find me, uh, like my music page and get in touch with me um, in any of the many ways that there are to get in touch with people these days uh, to find out about concert opportunities or bringing me anywhere. I travel the world and I love flying. I remember the first time I heard your music and I was actually on a boat on the Kinneret, which is where I'm heading to the Kinneret, you know, on Monday to do this water castle. And I remember hearing this song, my friend Aviva put it on and I was like, what is this? You know, what is this? This is music on a whole nother level. And it was just so real and so true and so beautiful and so well done. 
I was totally blown away when I heard your music. Um, so I really do feel honored that you brought me here today because I'm, I'm a fan. <laughs> Siona, thank you for your sweet words. They're so nice. I, I did not know that's where you got introduced to my music. It's so nice to hear that. And I'm such a big fan of what you're doing. You are so talented and you really inspire. In a way, like when I feel like I'm doing this for so long and I'm not where I want to be and then I look at you and I'm like, okay, somebody's been putting in a lot more years and I cannot <laughs> complain about this. Look at what you accomplished. Look at what you worked with and the the circumstances in which you had to work. So it gives me inspiration. It gives me strength. So thank you. If you have been enjoying the show, please make sure to subscribe, leave us a good review, share this podcast with other friends. Also, make sure to go back and listen to the episodes from the beginning. We have some amazing Jewish female artists who have been featured on the show. And if you do have suggestions for any future interviews you think we should hold, please make sure to reach out. We love hearing from you at franciscak at gmail.com. Please click on the link in the show notes to fill out a quick survey to help us build, improve, and make this podcast better for you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off, my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.